Good morning, and welcome to Simply Science. It's Monday, January 22nd. On today's show, long COVID signatures are identified in a huge analysis of blood proteins, and new algae species rewrite scientists' understanding of reef systems. Plus, we have insights from four female scientists caught at the early career crossroads. This coverage and more, up next. I'm David, and you're listening to Simply Science. We start off with a significant development in the ongoing fight against COVID-19. Researchers have developed a computational model that predicts the likelihood of a person developing long COVID based on an analysis of over 6,500 proteins found in blood. The study, published in Science, found notable differences in the composition of proteins in people with long COVID, those who recovered, and those who were never infected. Here to discuss more on this is our science correspondent, Helena. Helena, can you tell us more about this study and its findings? Sure, David. The study included healthy adults as well as people who had tested positive for COVID-19, some of whom had long COVID, defined as having symptoms persist six months after initial infection. The researchers analyzed 6,596 proteins across 268 blood samples, which were collected from participants once during the acute phase and again six months after. And they found several differences in the blood of people with long COVID compared with those without it, including an imbalance in proteins involved in blood clotting and inflammation. Can you tell us more about these proteins and their role in long COVID? Yes people with long COVID had lower levels of a protein called antithrombin-3, which helps to prevent blood clots, and higher levels of the proteins thrombospondin-1 and von Willebrand factor, both of which are associated with clot formation. The researchers also found increased activation of the complement system, part of the body's immune defenses, in people with long COVID. An imbalance of these proteins could cause tissue damage. How does this study help in understanding and treating long COVID? The study provides valuable insights into the biological mechanisms of long COVID and could pave the way for the development of therapies. Using machine learning, the researchers created a model to predict whether a participant would develop long COVID based on the protein levels in their blood, along with other factors such as age and body mass index. This model performed well in predicting which participants would have 12-month-long COVID when applied to a separate data set. What are the limitations of this study, and what are the next steps in this research? While the findings are promising, the study involved only a relatively small number of participants, and it does not pinpoint the root cause of the condition, which has been a key barrier to developing treatments. Larger studies are needed to account for the range of symptoms and the likely multiple underlying causes of long COVID. This is just the beginning of the exploration of this emerging field. That was our Simply Science correspondent, Helena. Thank you for shedding light on this important study and its implications for understanding and treating long COVID. A groundbreaking discovery has been made in the heart of the world-renowned Great Barrier Reef and unique reef systems of the Coral Sea and Lord Howe Island. An international team of marine scientists led by Griffith University has identified and officially named four species of algae 
new to science. This discovery challenges previous taxonomical assumptions within the Porolithon genus and has far-reaching implications for our understanding of the ecological role of these algae in the coral reef ecosystem. Here to discuss more on this is our marine biology correspondent, Arnold. Arnold, can you tell us more about the ecological importance of these newly discovered algae? Yes, David. These algae belonging to the Porolithon genus are known for their crucial ecological significance. They are responsible for cementing the delicate frameworks of coral reefs, thus sustaining marine biodiversity in the shallow margins of tropical and subtropical waters. Traditionally, certain forms of Porolithon found in the Indo-Pacific Ocean were identified as specific species. However, this recent study has revealed that these specimens in Eastern Australian waters actually belong to four distinct genetic lineages, none of which were the previously assumed species. That's fascinating. Can you tell us more about these four newly discovered species? Certainly. The four new species have unique characteristics and have been officially named. Porolithon lobulatum is found in the Coral Sea and on the Great Barrier Reef and has branched forms and lobed free margins. Porolithon parvulum, found in the central and southern Great Barrier Reef, is characterized by short and unbranched protuberances. Porolithon panaculum, found on oceanic coral sea reefs, exhibits a mountain-like columnar morphology. Lastly, Porolithon howensis, predominantly found at Lord Howe Island, forms columnar protuberances up to three centimeters tall. These species can be distinguished based on a combination of features, including their growth form, margin shape, and internal anatomy. What does this discovery mean for our understanding of the Porolithon genus and the Great Barrier Reef? This discovery challenges our understanding of the algae within the Porolithon genus and emphasizes the need for further exploration and conservation of the Great Barrier Reef and its unique inhabitants. These new species not only add to the rich biodiversity of the Great Barrier Reef and other remote coral reef areas, but also highlight the importance of continuous research and conservation efforts. Porolithon species are very sensitive to the impacts of ocean acidification and warming, and it is urgent that we recognize and document this diversity given the potential risks of losing this diversity to climate change. That was our Simply Science correspondent, Arnold. Thank you for shedding light on this groundbreaking discovery and its implications for the conservation of the Great Barrier Reef and its unique inhabitants. Each year, the Lindau Nobel Laureate Meeting in Germany brings together hundreds of early career researchers from around the world. The 2023 event focused on physiology and medicine, and four female researchers shared their career hopes and challenges. They spoke about dealing with career uncertainty, financial and time pressures, and the importance of prioritizing mental health. Here to delve deeper into these themes is our science correspondent, Bella. Bella, what are some of the key takeaways from these researchers' experiences? Well, David, these researchers highlighted several important issues. Ifra Abdullahi, a child development and early intervention autism research fellow in Australia, talked about the turbulent funding system and the challenges of bouncing from contract to contract. She also highlighted the significant drop-off of women in academia post-PhD and the need for supportive mentors. Abdullahi advocates for equal treatment of mothers in science and structural changes to aid career progression. That's quite a lot to contend with. What about the other researchers? Piper Rodding, 
a pharmaceutical sciences PhD candidate, emphasized the importance of mental health. She noted that many researchers struggle with well-being and mental health due to the cutthroat atmosphere and narrow path to success in science. She advocates for developing a support network and combating the stigma around mental health problems. Cottrell Tamasar, a reproductive biology PhD candidate in Australia, highlighted the leaky pipeline in academia and the need to broaden definitions of success beyond a conventional academic path. She calls for more synergy between universities and industry. Lastly, Prakriti Gupta, a pediatric critical care specialist in India, is grappling with the decision of whether to pursue a career as a clinician or a basic scientist. She feels torn between the instant gratification of clinical work and the long-term impact of basic research. It's clear that these researchers are grappling with significant challenges. What can be done to address these issues? There's no one-size-fits-all solution, David, but these researchers have suggested several approaches. These include more supportive funding systems, equal treatment and opportunities for mothers in science, mental health support, and better integration between academia and industry. There's also a need for more supportive mentors and a broader definition of success in academia. It's clear that systemic changes are needed to address these challenges and support early career researchers. It's a complex issue, but one that's crucial to the future of science. Biotechnology clusters, or concentrated areas of biotech activity, have shown a remarkable evolution over time. A recent study shows that regions that were top biotech hubs in the early years from 1978 to 1990 still maintain their biotech strength decades later. The study also found that an entrepreneurial orientation of scientific actors and a variety of networks with partners outside the cluster both contribute to sustained biotech activity. Here to delve deeper into this topic is our biotech correspondent, Stephen. Stephen, can you explain what these findings mean for the biotech industry? Sure, David. These findings suggest that the early establishment of a biotech cluster can have long-lasting effects on its strength and activity. This is likely due to the accumulation of resources, knowledge, and networks over time. The entrepreneurial orientation of scientific actors is also crucial. This means that scientists who are willing to take risks, innovate, and engage in business activities can significantly contribute to the growth and sustainability of a biotech cluster. So it seems like the early bird really does get the worm in the biotech industry. But what role do networks with partners outside the cluster play in this? Great question, David. Networks with partners outside the cluster can provide a variety of benefits. They can bring in new ideas and perspectives, access to additional resources, and opportunities for collaboration. These external networks can also help a biotech cluster stay connected with the broader industry and keep up with the latest trends and developments. That makes sense. Now, what implications do these findings have for regions looking to establish or strengthen their own biotech clusters? Well, these findings suggest that regions should invest in fostering an entrepreneurial culture among their scientific actors and in building strong networks both within and outside the cluster. They also highlight the importance of early establishment. So regions looking to become biotech hubs should not delay in setting up the necessary infrastructure and creating an environment conducive to biotech activity. That's insightful. Thanks for sharing your expertise on this topic, Stephen.
All right, that wraps up our stories for today. Thanks for listening to Simply Science. We'll see you back here tomorrow.